Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. In grad school in the 90s, it was fashionable to believe not in reality, but only in the real scare marks and closing what could not be truly named. Still, that was the last time in my life that truly felt real. And I don't think anything else has been entirely real since. I felt so much back then in the first years of my 20s, before the false apocalypse of Y2K and the true disaster of 9-11, before the billionaire mayor and the disnification of Times Square, before the East Village was Little Japan and back when Hell's Kitchen still deserved the name for its combination of butchery and vice. In the last years of the century, in the last years of the millennium, at the end of the empire, in the first years of my 20s, in the last months of my grandmother's life. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host of New Books and Literature for the New Books Network. And today I'm speaking with Ariella Friedman, author of A Joy to be Hidden, who is delighted to be back on her bicycle after the long Montreal winter. In this novel, her second, Friedman explores the ties that bind and destroy families, the memories that never let us go, and the lengths to which we'll go to find home. So let's get to it. Hi, Ariella. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Galit. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. So how did you come to write this book? A couple of years ago, a friend of mine was writing a book about New York, and we had been students in graduate school together in the 90s. And she asked me to write down a few memories for her. And I found that as I started writing down these memories of New York in that period, it was incredible. It was almost like everything was still there, like that period of my life had been frozen in amber and all I had to do to access it was to think about it. And I was having so much fun remembering and imagining that period of my life in New York that I thought it would be a really exciting place to set a novel. I had just finished my first novel, Arabic for Beginners, which is set in Jerusalem. And I had been exploring different writing projects kind of casually, and I hadn't really been thinking about a New York story. But I found that once I started exploring New York, I had a lot of momentum uh, to set a book in that time period and in that place. 
another thing happened that contributed to the story and dovetailed with this nostalgic and exciting return. I was um, talking to my uncle and he mentioned something about my grandmother that I'd never known. And I, I lost my dad when he was uh, 45 years old. So a little more than 20 years ago. And um, it, it's something that I'm not sure my father knew either. What my uncle told me was that after my father was born, when he was an infant, my grandmother had postpartum depression and that she ended up in an institution for up to a year of her life. I couldn't believe that he said this to me so casually. And I couldn't believe that I had lived through my whole adult life without knowing this about my grandmother. The other thing about having a a small family, a small and diminished family is there was nobody I could ask to verify that story. So my father was long gone. Uh, I didn't even know if this was something that he knew about his own infancy. My mother claimed to have no knowledge of it, and I don't have any other immediate family. So those two stories converged in my head, my memories of graduate school in the early 90s in New York City, in the late 90s in New York City, and this story about my grandmother, which I didn't have the ability to unravel, but which through fiction I could imagine. But the, your protagonist in the book doesn't really love her grandmother, doesn't really know her. Is that similar to your experience? Yeah, I, I think that um, there's a way in which, in my experience, I caught up with being really curious about my ancestors when it was a little bit too late to ask them questions. And I was really regretful about that. Um, and that was the case, I think, with both of my grandmothers, um, my New York grandmother, uh, who was the one who was perhaps institutionalized after my father was born, and, and also my actually Chicago grandmother, who was a Holocaust survivor. Um, neither of them talked about their pasts. Neither of them were very easy to know. Uh, and both of them died when I was in my early 20s. So before I'd really developed the maturity or ability to have the kinds of deep conversations that would have allowed me to develop a deeper intimacy. So it's definitely a kind of wish fulfillment to write out the stories that you weren't smart enough to learn when the people who could have told them to you were still alive, or maybe it's a kind of a seance. For me, it helped me uh, feel closer to them, even though it was an imagined past that I was able to access that way. Wow, I wish I had known that before I read the book. It's really interesting. And I would have been thinking all along. Um, anyway, Postpartum depression was not a subject that people spoke about back then. It, it, it was not at all. And um, it, it was something that I had experienced uh, when I had babies. And it would have been, for one thing, really useful to know that there was a kind of a family history. So when I started to think about what it might have been like for somebody in the late 40s to experience that, I realized how little vocabulary and how few resources would have been available for her. And that's part of the mystery that Alice needs to unravel in part to get to the answer of why her grandmother did seem so distant and did have a kind of an ambivalent relationship uh, to her own grandchildren. And the whole situation of the electric shock therapy. Yes. Yeah. All of it. So disturbing. Um, so there are lots of characters in the book to discuss, but among them is the city of New York. So can you introduce us to your 
section of the city that you portray so vividly? So the book is set mostly in the East Village and around uh, St. Mark's Place and NYU. And back in the 90s, I think of that as a really, really magical location uh, because there was so much art and so much culture. And the city itself was just emerging from a period which I think was pretty risky and pretty difficult for New York into a period in which it was thriving, but still had a kind of a grittiness. And I think it helps that my protagonist is 23 and she's living on her own for the first time. And so in that situation, any metropolis is really intoxicating, but perhaps New York is especially intoxicating. I actually didn't go back to New York while I was writing the book and I hadn't been there for a couple of years. And I I did that deliberately because I knew from other visits that the New York of my memory was not the New York of post 9-11 and was not the New York of post Bloomberg and was certainly not the New York of the second decade of the 21st century. And one of the things that I wanted to write into in this book was the city that I felt a lot of love for and a lot of ambivalence about, but the city that was also so changed that it was in some ways barely recognizable. Um, so for instance, uh, it is a it is a dangerous city. It is a, an unfolding city. Uh, it is a pre-internet city. It is a pre-crisis city. It is a pre-billionaire city. Not in an absolute way, but in the way that I've changed that has changed New York very much. I went back last week uh, for the first time since publishing the book. And it was so exciting and strange to be there and in some ways really disappointing and in other ways really wonderful. I went back to St. Mark's Place, which is the street where Alice lives and which is a street that I know really, really well. And that particular block, I don't think there is one business that is the same as in the 90s. There's a huge tourist emporium on the corner Uh, There's a big supermarket, Um, St. Mark's Comics is gone, the sex shop is gone, the crack house is gone, Uh, Kim's Video is gone, Uh, and there are all of these little Japanese restaurants. But I had this really fun experience, which is a couple of blocks over on 9th Street, things were a lot more familiar and a lot less changed. And I I went and had a meal at a place called um, Superiority Burger, which is it's a kind of a punk, vegetarian, almost vegan, little hole in the wall. I ordered a sandwich and I sat in Tompkins Square and I felt euphoric and I could not figure out what was going on if they had put something like in the veggie burger. But I think it was that suddenly I was back there again and I realized, all right, the East Village is still here. It's moved a little bit. Um, But all of these things about the East Village have stayed in place. It was kind of incredible. And by the way, a very good burger. Okay, good to know. So why did you divide the book, the book into parts? So the book is divided into three parts. And At the end of each part, there is either a a change or a discovery. Um, And the book begins with a a death, and then it flashes back a couple of months, and the first section ends with the funeral. And the second section and third section, they each end with a kind of a discovery. I think I'm attracted to that theatrical three-act structure. I think there's something about it which 
rhythmically makes sense to me. Even that structure of argument, that thesis and antithesis and synthesis, you know, where sections are placed in opposition to each other and then they come together. And I was also thinking about all these different threes that I have in the novel, uh, know Alice and her grandmother Helen and her grandmother's best friend Bella that's one set of threes and Alice and this little girl Persephone and Persephone's mother Fiona that's another set of threes so in addition to three being the magic number of dialectic and the magic number of theater three is also a magical number in all kinds of fairy tales and so it came up for me uh, in different ways in relation to different parts of the novel. Mm -hmm. So what about Alice intrigues you the most? Alice is um, an observer and she's really curious about the world and she's pretty open to experience, but she's also a little bit uh, naive. And she's had this intoxicating intellectual coming of age, but she hasn't quite caught up with it personally yet. So in relation to the world and the world of experience, she's still learning, but she doesn't want to stay in the bubble of graduate school. She really keeps getting pulled back into the world. I think that was what interested me about her, that combination of somebody who is pretty introspective, um, a little removed, a little inexperienced, but quite open. Mm -hmm. Early on, she meets Persephone, the 11-year-old neighbor from downstairs, who becomes an important part of the story. Let's talk about her. I really like the character of Persephone. I've spent a lot of time with um, little girls and uh, with children who are coming of age. When I was writing the book, I actually had an 11-year-old, not daughter, but son. And so I was watching him go through some of these transitions, even as I was writing Persephone through some of those transitions. That's one of the reasons that at the end, there's a little bit of an accelerated adolescence. And I hadn't thought about writing that in when I started writing the book. And then I realized as I was writing it, yeah, adolescence is an experience of metamorphosis. And it's pretty dramatic. And it's pretty unsettling of relationships. So um, Persephone, Persephone, in a funny way, is more of an Alice than Alice is. Persephone is really close to that Alice in Alice in Wonderland, who is this precocious little girl uh, who is up for all kinds of adventures and who is also a little abandoned, a little at risk. So Persephone is living on St. Mark's Place, which back in the 90s was not the most salubrious environment for a young girl. She's being raised by a single mom who's quite young as well. And in sort of ambiguous circumstances, it's unclear at first what's happened to her father and uh, where he's gone. And it's sort of unclear how tended she is, how well she is looked after. And Alice, who's 23, has this funny relationship to her because on the one hand, Alice ends up being a sort of a surrogate mother because Persephone is so abandoned. And that's good for Alice. It gives her something concrete to do and it gives her something, someone to care for, uh, which I think is important. The world of graduate school, which Alice is inside, can be really sterile and it can be a real bubble. So Persephone is somebody who connects her to the world of caring for other people. 
at the same time, Persephone draws her back to her own childhood and her own girlishness. And she gets to experience that through these outings with Persephone. But the blurriness between those two categories, are you a child with her, are you her mother, that's part of the problem of their relationship and part of the problem that I wanted to explore. And in the book in general, I really wanted to look at accidental motherhood. Uh, So the ways in which mothers, uh, biological mothers, sometimes get entrapped in domestic roles and the ways in which other women sometimes step into maternal relationships uh, to children who are not their biological children. So Alice, without knowing it, becomes part of what is actually a generational pattern. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Mm. So then there's also another trio of Persephone and her mother and the estranged father. Yes, um, that's right. And that that's another thing which comes back near the end of the book when Hank, this absent father, shows up. And we realize that the story that Persephone's mother has been telling about her marriage is not necessarily the only story and is not necessarily a true story. So in almost all of the cases in the book, the characters have one kind of narrative about their life, and then that narrative gets challenged or called into question by somebody else so that you start to get a sense of uh, the subjectivity of the their experiences and the way that it splinters into this kaleidoscope of combative perspectives. Cause it's not just that they have different versions of that story. It's that their versions are actually actively in conflict with each other. So when Fiona Persephone's mother says, I fled this marriage and then Hank Persephone fathers, Persephone's father says, she ran away with my child you're not sure exactly who to believe. And I kind of wanted to juxtapose those unreliable but psychologically motivated versions with this period uh, in academia when all stories are being called into question, when there is a kind of a general skepticism uh, that is triumphant in the academy and where there is a sort of an abandonment of any idea of a shared narrative or shared truth. But my characters aren't ready to give up on that idea of a shared narrative or a shared truth. It feels really important and really urgent. And partly it feels important and urgent because 
when you have a family story that you can't access or you can't verify, you can feel really robbed of that stability. So Alice keeps looking for the story that she can believe or the story that she can trust or the story that she can live with or the story that will restore her past back to herself. Ah, so I was wondering why you told the story about her issues with one of her students, but maybe it's because of the stories he tells her, more stories of this kind, that it's not clear what's true, what's not true. Yeah, exactly. Bo, uh, who's a young student from Hong Kong, he's another one of those unreliable narrators. So I, I wanted to kind of bring it up to the present. You know, Alice's immigrant ancestors come from Europe in the 40s, but she's teaching a class at NYU that includes these immigrant kids, including this kid from Hong Kong, who really challenges her. And when he writes a personal essay that plays into certain things that she wants to believe and then sort of betrays her, she has to figure out whether or not to believe him and what to do with that narrative. So I, I guess I think that immigrants tend to invent themselves through writing. And I guess I wanted to give, you know, new New York a chance to do that as much as I gave old New York a chance to express that. I, I was really happy because I heard from a, an old student uh, who taught English in Hong Kong for a long time. And she wrote to me and she said, he was my favorite character. I feel like I know that kid. I feel like I know that kid's parents. And that was a harder character to write because that was a bigger leap for me than a lot of the other characters whose stories I was trying to tell. So the idea that it felt resonant uh, was incredibly reassuring. Okay. And then what is the connection? I was kind of surprised and excited to suddenly see that the famous deconstructionist philosopher Jacques Derrida has a cameo. Yes, that's right. So what was his connection to all of this? Yeah. Well, you know, Alice is at NYU in the 90s. And I, I think I say in the book, there was never a better moment for theory than NYU in the late 90s. It was such a a vogue in that period. It was the subject of every conversation and it was a real celebrity culture. So Derrida, I felt like I didn't have to fictionalize Derrida because Derrida is already fictionalized. He's so invested in the creation of himself and in the construction of himself. And I thought it would be really interesting to have a novel which is about the different stories that people tell themselves during this period in which story itself becomes this obvious preoccupation of philosophy, where philosophy ends up turning into a, a set of stories in a mode that seems kind of charismatic and also potentially kind of sophistic. Um, I'd read uh, Lawrence Binet's book, HHHH, which uses all of these deconstructionists in a kind of a, a murder mystery. Uh, so Roland Barthes and uh, Avital Ronel, who is actually also at NYU in that period. And I thought it was really funny to have these characters who one kind of recognized appropriated into a fictional tale. So on the one hand, Derrida speaks to the thematics of the book. And on the other hand, he just seems like such a delightful character to have in a fiction. He was indeed. What about her roommate, Brenda? 
and how Alice behaves around her. <laughs> Alice is a little bit of a snob. And one of the things that she's learning over the course of the book is that her perceptions of other people are not as acute as she imagines. And she thinks of herself as kind of uh, removed. She is sort of attached to her own specialness. And so when she sees Brenda and she sees the ways in which Brenda seems normative or conventional, she treats that with a lot of disgust. Um, But one of the things that I wanted to show is that is one of the ways in which Alice is not particularly seasoned yet. She doesn't understand very much about her roommate and she doesn't understand very much about her roommate because she doesn't yet understand very much about herself, um, including the fact that she is attracted to dramatic people sometimes because of a very superficial charisma, not because they are necessarily all that profound or all that good for her to have in her life. So she has a nice roommate and she's at the exact wrong moment in her life to appreciate niceness. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, she pursues a relationship that seems just doomed from the minute it starts. I feel like she pursues a number of doomed relationships. Which one are you talking about? Okay, with the man. Uh, this is Hank or this is Jacob? Didn't want to give away too much. Oh, but yes. Yeah, thank you. Maybe we should take that out. I don't know. You're much more seasoned than I am at avoiding spoilers in interviews. Uh, okay, yeah. Uh, so Jacob is a kind of a extreme version uh, of this type that one sometimes encounters in graduate school, who's uh, really smart, but really um, narcissistic and really passive. And once again, she has this nice boy who's interested in her and who she can't maintain any interest in. But because Jacob is essentially disinterested, she sees him as a kind of a challenge. Um, And she engages with him even though it's really apparent to the reader that there isn't much of a future and it isn't going to be a particularly healthy relationship Mm -hmm. and then bella silver somehow comes into her life at a wedding she meets her at a wedding and there's a notebook and what can you say without divulging too much So Bella is an old friend of her grandmother's uh, who she's never met. And Bella is an artist. And one of the reasons that I wanted to write Bella's character is I fell in love with the idea of this older woman who has devoted her life to art and lives in this studio that she's transformed uh, with her sculptures and puppets and drawings at one point she has a whole winter garden inside of her studio uh, that she's growing as a pilot for an installation so I was exploring a lot of women from that generation um, and from the next generation the generation of Alice's mother whose other identities got pretty subsumed by motherhood and the domestic and Bella is somebody who doesn't have a child and develops this rich, creative life. Uh, I had gone to see an exhibit of Louise Bourgeois at the Tate and Louise Bourgeois, who was also a mother, um, combined that with this incredibly ambivalent, potent, multivalent artistic practice that included 
uh, sewing and tapestry and children's books and illustrated books and paintings and unbelievable sculptures. And I was thinking of Bella Silver a little bit in that mode. I think one of the things I realized when writing this book is that I can try to practice the arts that I haven't mastered by writing characters who are themselves masters of those arts. Uh, So I loved writing about her artwork. Uh, Maybe in another book, I'll be able to write a musician because that is another art that I admire deeply and have no, have no confidence at. Belle is also another one of these surrogate parents. She mentors Alice, uh, although kind of briefly. Uh, She provides really important information to Alice uh, about Alice's own story. And she's played a role in Alice's history that Alice is ignorant of, but that is gradually revealed over the course of the book. Mm -hmm. So, Ariella, I've taken up enough of your time, and this is really wonderful, but can you... Uh, can we close with you telling us what are you working on next? So I, I'm working on something that I don't know how to do. And um, it, it's kind of exciting and will be exciting to figure out if I can make it happen. Um, I'm doing research on this really interesting woman, Leah Roback. Uh, who was a socialist and a political activist and a trade union activist. She organized the first big union strike in Montreal, the Medinet strike in uh, 1936. Um, And thousands of garment workers ended up going out on the street and uh, striking for, you know, better hours and a better wage in what was the most exploited labor environment in all of North America. And basically, as long as Montreal was there, Montreal produced much, uh, many of the garments for all of North America. And as long as its um, working conditions were so poor, any gains in other cities like New York or Chicago or Toronto were minimal because people would just close up their factories and move them to Montreal. Mm-hmm. I've written a Jerusalem book and I've written a New York book and I've never written a Montreal book and I'm learning so much about Montreal's crazy, fascinating history. And I'm learning a lot about this woman who for decades and decades agitated uh, for what she believed was right. Uh, So her archive is here as well. I've been spending a little bit of time there in the Jewish Public Library, which is also new to me, and spending a little time trying to figure out how to write a historical novel. Good luck with all of it. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. This was fun. And thank you for joining me to hear this podcast interview. This is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host of New Books and Literature for the New Books Network. Today I've been speaking to Ariella Friedman about her book, A Joy to be Hidden. Join the New Books Network for a wealth of podcast interviews across a spectrum of subjects. And until you hear from me again, happy reading.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.